One of my dear uh, mentors and friends is a man called Eugene Peterson, who was a longtime pastor in Maryland and then a well-known professor at Regent University in Vancouver, probably best known, though, for his writing and maybe particularly best known for the message. And as I was uh, reading through and studying and meditating on our readings this week, it put me in mind of his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Uh, The subtitle of that book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, is uh, Discipleship in an Instant Society. And thinking about that, I remembered that, you know, we're in ordinary time and that those of us who aren't liturgical experts, you know, might not know what ordinary time is. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about ordinary time being green and the decorations of the church being green and, you know, kind of standing for growth and life and change and goodness and that sort of thing. But you may not be aware that ordinary time in the liturgical year is about 33 or 34 weeks, depending on the particular year. So it is the vast majority of the year. You have these two big, long stretches after Advent and Christmas, and then another long stretch after Lent and Easter of this thing called ordinary time. This time in which the readings are specifically chosen and laid out to instruct us how to live our Christian faith in our actual daily lives. There's a a quote from Peterson's book that I like. He says, there's a great market for religious experience in our world, but there's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. There's little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness, or that we tend to call today spiritual formation or spiritual transformation or sometimes discipleship. And I think one of the key kind of challenges for us is that I think all of us, I I know I can speak for myself, maybe for you, that we tend to want to have obedience on our terms. Maybe you heard the story of a husband and wife, elderly, the husband was dying, he had this neurotic idea that he wanted to take all of his money with him when he died. I mean, like he literally wanted it all put in his casket because he wanted to take it with him into the afterlife. And he literally made his wife promise, you have to promise me that you will take all my money and put it in my casket. And she agreed and said, okay. Well, the day of the funeral came and one of her friends said to her, come on, no way. You are not going to put all your money in the casket. And just as the casket's about to be closed and rolled away, she takes this beautiful little gold and jeweled box and places it in the casket and covers it and watches it go away. And, And again, her friend says, I can't believe you did that. And the wife said, yeah. I wrote him a check. If he can cash it, he can have it. (laughs) And it's sort of that way, you know. We kind of want to have obedience on our terms. And so we give lip service to a kind of obedience. But when it comes, as Eugene says, to actually having patient uh, or the patience to acquire virtue, to have the inclination to actually sign up for a long obedience in the same direction, it's a little different. Because obedience means some things that aren't really uh, very cool today. It's actually the practice of obeying. That's what obedience is. It's conformity. Now, I don't know if there's a more uncool word in Southern California than conformity. But that's precisely what's at the heart of obedience. It means precisely that there's something out there that's superior to us and we're conforming to it. That is to say that there's a deference. We're deferring to it. 
And again, that happens through practices, not through um, kind of mental assent or, or lip service in the way that, lo- that wife said, yeah, yeah, I promise I'll do it. It actually happens through practices. And if you want to look at your uh, bulletin, please, we're going to take a little time to look through the uh, passage from Hebrews, because the passage from Hebrews gives us actually some practices that we can use for a long obedience in the same direction. So you may want to follow this. The first one is, it says, love one another as brothers. Now, you know, you've all heard of the city of Philadelphia. You've probably heard of the Greek term, you know, that that comes from philos, which just means brotherly love. And so really the first spiritual practice of a long obedience in the same direction is just look around yourself right now and ask yourself, how can I love these people? Because that's what this text means. It doesn't mean love outsiders. This is not a little saying on evangelism. This is not a saying on the poor. This is not a saying on people outside of us as Jesus was talking about the lame, the blind, the crippled. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here is how are you going to learn to love the people right around you who aren't always lovely or who sometimes tick you off or sometimes, you know, they annoy you or whatever. And one of the basic sort of spiritual practices is not acting as if you love someone, but what can you do so that you become the kind of person for whom loving a sister or a brother is natural? That, my friends, is a long obedience in the same direction. Because that's just not normative to, I don't know that that's normative to any of us. What's normative to us is to be annoyed. What's normative to us is to be ticked off. And this is why you feel, on the one hand, stressed or hypocritical. Because when you're really annoyed and ticked off, but asking, acting different than that, I mean, that's just the classic definition of hypocritical. And nobody wants to do that. You know, you want to keep it real. But if keeping it real means that you're constantly annoyed with everybody, what good is that? What you have to do is change what's real. And that is a long obedience in the same direction to actually rewire ourselves so that love of sisters and love of brothers becomes normative. Well, now we get to something that is a little more outward-oriented, and that's hospitality. When the writer of Hebrews says, second here, do not forget to entertain strangers. Now he's saying that that Philadelphia, that love of brothers, it extends, it starts in the community of faith, and then it extends from a community of faith like ours, to those who are outside of us. Uh, All the time, it can be friends, it can be family, it can be media people, it can be students. I get asked all the time, you know, kind of give me quickly, what's Holy Trinity Anglican Church all about? And that is always a very easy question for me to answer in a soundbite. Then I have to unpack it, of course, but the soundbite is journey inward, journey outward. If you want to know what we're all about, We're all about the journey inward. That is to say, we are seriously, consciously, practically pursuing our own spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. We don't say the opening acclamation because it's Anglican. We say it because we're trying to center our life on God. We don't pray, come Holy Spirit, because lots of us come out of charismatic or Pentecostal backgrounds. We say it because we want to live a life that is immersed in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We don't do any of this for any sort of religious reason, we do it because we believe that these are corporate spiritual disciplines that work synergistically with this choice we've all made 
to live in this long obedience in the same direction. So we're trying to do two things, rewire our own hearts. But we're trying to do that not for our own piety merely, but for the sake of others. So what these first two spiritual practices in a long obedience in the same direction alert us to is that there's first this journey inward, learning to love our brothers as ourselves, and then there's this journey outward towards strangers, as the text says here. That is to say, those with whom you don't normally socially connect. Now, I love sociology, so I say this playfully. What this text is asking us to do is throw out sociology. It's asking us to throw out niche. It's asking us to throw out demographics. It's asking us to throw out economic categories and income categories and race and age and ethnic background and say what you're trying to do is take that love of brothers and now bring it together around something that is whole. And this, of course, is what Jesus is getting at in the gospel reading when he says, when you give a banquet, invite strangers. Invite those who are outside of your normal social circle, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And he says, and you will be blessed. Blessed because it's showing love. Love is not a warm feeling. Um, I can't remember how long we've been doing this for maybe a couple years now, and mostly because of a Debbie's leadership in our house, when we lived in Boise and here every Sunday afternoon, we, we've gone somewhere and fed the poor and the homeless. Well, you know, I've got a doctor's degree, and I look at me, I'm totally boring average person, and I don't know who these people are. Some of them have doctoral degrees. Some of them didn't graduate from high school. I don't easily and naturally connect, is all I'm trying to say. In that sense, it's strange. And you have to learn to become the kind of person for whom that kind of connection could even happen. But Jesus is saying this is what this love of God, or excuse me, yes, love of God, love of each other, and then love for others leads to. And this is why in the same passage in Luke that humility is connected to hospitality. When Jesus says, when you go somewhere, don't take the highest seat, take the lowest seat. Because the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And you do have to humble yourself to throw out sociology. Either way, if you're poor, you have to humble yourself to be in a room with people who you know have more means than you. If you're rich, you have to humble yourself to be in the same place. That works both ways. Because everybody has inside of them, listen to this, everybody has inside of them a very deep human hungering for homogeneity. Everybody has it. It's just the most natural thing to be with people like yourself. And so to, it, to, so to put yourself routinely in places where it's not homogeneous, it takes a reworking of your inner life. It takes a long obedience in the same direction. But the psalmist tells us when that happens, when we start moving in that direction, Good will come to him who's generous and lends freely, who conducts his affair with justice. Remember reading this in the psalm this morning? He, this person, the person who lends freely, the person who conducts his affairs with justice, he'll have no fear of bad news. His or her heart is steadfast. That is to say, fear of God leads to a life of fearlessness. So the the woman, the man who lives this way, 
is able to just be free and as a free person is able to create spaces that are safe for others as well. Well, a third practice for a long obedience in the same direction is this business of remembering those who are in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if yourselves were suffering. The key words there, if you want to circle them in your bulletin, are as if. You see, because what the text is assuming here is we're not all in prison. We're not in homogeneity with those who are in prison. We're not in homogeneity typically with those who are abused by society. And so therefore, a part of this sort of internal spiritual transformation is in therapeutic terms to fake it till you make it. And if you've been in therapy, you've heard that phrase. That is to say, just start acting like you're not an alcoholic until you become not an alcoholic. I mean, that's one of the basic practices of any kind, dealing with any kind of addiction. And I'm not saying the Bible here is talking out of that sort of therapeutic worldview, but something like that is happening here when it says, act as if. Now, this brings up, just give me a one-minute rabbit trail here, because it brings up something that I think is really crucial to uh, Christian spirituality all over America, and, uh, and especially in places here like Southern California. There is, in my judgment, a completely artificial distinction happening between social justice and evangelism. And, you know, you read a text like this or, other te- like, or you read the text in the gospel where Jesus encourages us to invite people outside of ourselves. And so there is becoming, <clears throat> all, all over the place, this notion that what Christians are really supposed to do in a sense of all we're really supposed to do is do this kind of stuff. We're supposed to lead lives of social justice. Philadelphia, entertaining strangers, that's what this is all about. And evangelism has become kind of a dirty word. And this shows up in every study. Pew, Lily, Gallup, Barna, it shows up everywhere that our society is more uncomfortable in the conversation between the church and, quote, the world or the non-church. That conversation is more difficult, more strained than at any time any of us have been alive. And so many Christians are thinking, you know, we just have to dial that back. It's like we shouldn't be, you know, forcing our faith on others and that sort of thing. But can we just stop here for just a moment of logic? Every Christian saying, we shouldn't really evangelize, we should just do deeds of kindness, is only a Christian and in that place because someone led them to faith. It doesn't take a genius to figure this out. That I mean, I get it. I get why people are sensitive to the conversation. I genuinely get it. No one wants to be rejected by their friends. Your friends are afraid that they're going to be rejected by you if they don't listen to you. I get how uncomfortable the conversation is, but you are only here this morning because somebody helped you come to faith. A third grade Sunday school teacher, your Uncle Bill, you watched Billy Graham on TV, you went to a Greg Laurie crusade, somebody shared the faith with you. And now your faith has developed and it's become alive for the sake of others, which is a wonderful thing, but we don't have an option between social justice and evangelism. We don't have a, an option between the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. They go together and they both explain the kingdom of God. Good for all of us who are finally paying attention. Good for all of us who are sort of, uh, you know, kind of fundamentalists or conservative evangelicals who realize that there's more to Christian life than just the word of Jesus, that there are these works. Good for us for picking that up. Good for us for responding to it. But it can't mean that we drop off his words. Who have these amazing 
contradictions. I mean, how can we take serious that sheep and goats? Those are not my words. Those aren't the words of Billy Graham. Sheep and goats are the words of Jesus. Wheat and tares. Light and dark. I mean, we could go on and on with these parallels where Jesus is encouraging people to come out of the darkness and into the light, to be a part of God's sheepfold. On and on and on. So this passage is telling us that a big part of this long obedience in the same direction has to do with having the humility to find ways to be in honest, humble conversation with the non-believing culture around us, as well as serving them with goodness. We do both, not one or the other. Well, gosh, actually, this passage is full of uh, uh, tough things, because now we get to sex. Uh, Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between husband and wife, for God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex, so says the message. Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. For God draws a firm line between casual and illicit sex. Now this is just, we know, there's obviously a lot to say about this, more than I can say in a 20-minute sermon. So let me just say this. What we do with our body parts matter. It is not merely private. It actually matters to God. Now, wherever you might land on certain sort of sexual mores, and I'm sure all over this room, people would land in different places in different sort of talks about different forms of sex. But the one place we can't go that a liberal, and again, I don't mean liberal like political liberals versus conservatives. I mean liberal in the sense of like liberal democracy. Just think of the Western world. The one place we can't go is where the Western world is driving us is that none of this matters. It does matter. It matters hugely to God what you do with your body parts. It's not just, well, it's just between me and my mate, whoever my mate might be. Because this just changes every half a generation or something. I mean, I remember when I was young, open marriages in the 60s. Wife swapping parties. That was sort of the cool thing to do. And it didn't matter. It's free love. And now we can just go on and on and on tracking this to where now, do you know that there are political action committees and websites and professional fundraising groups and stuff devoted to driving down the age of consent to physical capacity? If you, can, if you have the physical capacity to have sex, then it's okay for some guy to be hunting you down on the web. Because it doesn't matter. It's all good. And God says, no, what you do with your body parts, he really matters to me. That he really draws a fine, firm line here against casual and illicit sex. And of course, this is part of what Jeremiah is getting at when he talks about them going their own way. Because all around them were the... the Baals, the Baals, as we say. They were the Canaanite chief god, and it was all about fertility. And so if you wanted God to bless you, you went to the temple and you had prostitute sex. And that stood constantly, kind of like a fly in salsa or something. It just, it stood right in the middle of Israel's life constantly. And it was a constant temptation to them to go with the wider culture and participate in this kind of sex. Well, next, a long obedience in the same direction tells us we to keep our lives free of the love of money. Look at your text there. Well, why? How can we do that? 
Because God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So Eugene in the message says, don't be obsessed with getting more material things. Be relaxed about what you have. Since God has assured us, I'll never let you down. I'll never walk off and leave you. We can then boldly quote, God is there ready to help. And I'm fearless no matter what. Who or what can get to me? Well, the next thing in a long obedience in the same direction, our passage says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And again, that is to say, I'm, let me just, I'll speak for myself. I'm 54 years old. Um, I'm highly educated, but I have all around me men and women who are my mentors. I don't know where I got this. 20 or 25 years ago, somebody said to me, Todd, you don't just need a mentor. You need a constellation of mentors. Debbie loves to tell the story of the time John Wimber said to her, I've never met anybody who asks more questions than your husband. I don't know. I've just always been like that. I've just always believed that other people knew things that I didn't know. And if I can borrow part of your brain, it's to all of our good. If I can borrow part of your wisdom, part of your experience, it's all to our good. So I literally have a constellation of people all around me. My, my book before this last one was dedicated to Richard Foster, Eugene Peterson, and Dallas Willard because they saved my life 20 years ago. They saved my spiritual life, and I'm happy to say it publicly. My next book that's coming out in December is dedicated to Archbishop Kalini and Bishop Rushahana because they saved my faith in Christian leadership. I'm not ashamed to say that. You don't have to be a 14-year-old girl or boy to humble yourself and say, these are my mentors. These are the people I give myself to. I'm a full-grown man and a public person, and I am happy to say publicly that I am happy to remember my leaders. I adore, for instance, Greg Laurie. I absolutely adore him. I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with everything he says, but I adore him. Why? Because one day, 34, 35 years ago, Debbie and I stood right before him and said the sinner's prayer. He helped me come to faith. I'll never forget that. So the Bible says, remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate them. It's right at the heart of a long obedience in the same direction. And then, of course, the, the, the cap it all off, it says, but most of all, remember Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So about him, I don't have to say like I did about Greg. I don't agree with everything he says or does. But with Jesus, you have somebody you can imitate, somebody you can follow, somebody you can give your life to who is the perfect leader to imitate. I think as we close here, we need to just say this, that a long obedience in the same direction is a choice. No one drifts into discipleship. No one looks around someday and goes, oh my gosh, I'm following Jesus. How did that happen? Now, you might step on a scale and go, how the H-E double toothpicks did that happen? You can drift into 10 pounds, uh, right? You can drift into all kinds of sort of addictions. That can happen. But no one drifts into discipleship. It's no one drifts into a long obedience in the same direction. In his book of that title, Peterson puts it this way. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think that the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, 
Or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety and into a life of tranquility. We're not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. A long obedience in the same direction is a choice. And you cannot, you will not make that choice unless you trust God. The message from the prophet Jeremiah this morning was this. Write this down. Never think a bad thought about God. If you don't have a pen, write it on your heart. Never permit yourself to think a bad thought about God ever. Why does that have to be said? Because the truth of it is, God is the most accused being in the history of the cosmos. Everybody has a beef with God. Do you know the number one question that like Alpha or Gary Poole and Seeker Small Groups or people like me who study evangelism, do you know what the number one question of every, non, or not of every non-believer, but the number one question of all non-believers is this, why is there suffering? And, and that is an okay question. You can just never let it lead you to thinking bad thoughts about God. This is what Jeremiah is saying. How can you forget me? Like, can't you hear a teenager going, really? Like, you forgot me? The guy who led you out of bondage in Egypt? The guy who led you through the desert into this amazing promised land and you've forgotten me? And you've started digging your own cisterns? And you've started trying to provide for your own wealth and to satisfy yourself and secure yourself in these other ways? Really? Really, you forgot me? Well, why did they forget him? Because they began to accuse him. Do you really love us? Are you really with us? And a long obedience in the same direction requires first and foremost that we make a choice to never permit ourselves to have a bad thought about God. Because that's what's really alive in our world today. The two big questions alive in our world today is the atheistic one, is there a God? And then there's what I call sort of the spiritual question, and that goes like this, who is the God who's there? Got the atheistic question, is there a God? Then you've got sort of the question that, well, I'm spiritual but not religious people are asking, and that question is, who is the God who is there? And Israel was missing it in the second way. They had forgotten this God that they knew. And God's inviting them back into a relationship, asking them to make a decision to actually commit themselves to this long obedience in the same direction. So here Jesus say, this is Jesus in the Gospels, looking at a group of his friends, just like you guys. And he said to them, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Are you tired of drinking from your own cisterns? Those things that leak like sieves? Come to me, Jesus said. Come join the long journey, this long obedience in the same direction. Come join me, Jesus said, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, be in this long obedience in the same direction. Watch how I'm doing this long obedience with my Father. Learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, Jesus said. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly.
So what marks a long obedience in the same direction? Unforced rhythms of grace. Nothing heavy or ill-fitting, but the free and light life that God intended for humanity in his image. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would spark and inspire faith in our hearts. Spark and inspire a commitment to a long obedience in the direction of you, our maker, our creator, and the one who redeemed us. Let's stand together now as we recite our common faith together in the Apostles' Creed. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.